0: Welcome to the Conquering Truth podcast. I'm Dan Horn.
1: I'm Jonathan Sides. I'm Charles Churchill,
2: and I'm Joshua Horn.
0: Today we're going to replay a, a audio-only podcast that we did right after the election to discuss how did we get to the place where we have two leaders like Donald Trump and Joe Biden as the best candidates for for the American election? How are these two men the best? And it says a lot about our country that these two men are the best. So we recorded this right after the election, and we want to replay it now, part of which is because I've been out of the country, so we haven't done a video one. So next week, we'll come back with a video. But this week, it's audio only. This evening, we wanted to have a discussion about our nation, and we've just finished an election, and we've had two candidates both of whom have pretty serious character flaws. Joe Biden had run for president twice before. Once in 1988, he was rejected by the country because he had the audacity to lie about the number of degrees he had. He lied about the number of scholarships that he received. In going to college, he lied about being first in his class when he was actually barely graduated. And so at that point in time, you know, 32 years ago it was enough to get him thrown out of the, out of the candidacy and now then you also have him running against Donald Trump Donald Trump has been bankrupt 3 times Donald Trump has been yeah. you know married 3 times because he cheated on his previous wives and these are two very flawed candidates by traditional american standards so how do we get to the point as a nation where we would think these are the two best candidates to be running for president, that these are the best two that we could could put forward?
2: I mean, I think uh, blame could be assigned a lot of places. Uh, people blame, I mean, the political parties, the ruling class. People blame the voting system, first past the post, uh, where, you know, you have to, you don't even need to get a majority of people to like you. You you people blame the you know two party system and all. Perhaps some of those have some merit, but I, when you look at scripture and when you look at um, even what the founders, Christians and non Christians said, uh, the founders of the United States, you have it. What what they said is that to maintain a country, it's not about um, the rulers leading the people into wickedness. It's the people not it's, it's the people's fault for the candidates that they're getting it's not it's not it's not the system it's it, it's a manifestation of of the people
0: so your argument would be that that we accept liars for our presidential candidate because we're a nation that accepts <laughs> lying throughout our culture
2: yep i mean i mean if you had people who everyone knows that politicians are liars but we still vote for them we hopefully generally, uh, as a nation, not me personally, but we we, we vote for them.
3: Yeah, I think if you take that to a logical conclusion, even from a scriptural point of view, you take it back and say, it's not just the people's fault, it's the church's fault. And, it, you know, in the end, I mean, Scripture says that we're the light of the world, we're the salt of the earth. I mean, that, so I mean, functionally, there's just this part of it where, I mean, I agree completely with what Joshua was saying. It's like, it's that, you know, yes, leaders have responsibility, but the people have responsibility and then then, and the church is, is what drives the people and the church is what drives the world. And so, you know, you can't get those kind of pol- – everybody's always making this argument in the election. You'd see the post, we're not electing a pastor-in-chief. But the truth is, is if, you, if you look – if you ask what happens when someone in a church is righteous, what happens when someone in a church hates sin and speaks out against it, how does the church treat that person? And if the church welcomes that person and, and and encourages them to continue to do that and to continue to confront sin, I think you'd have a lot better leaders. But I don't think that's the treatment that, that happens in churches when someone does that.
0: And it seems to me that, right, I mean, the the Bible says that the darkness flees before the light and that we're supposed to expose the hidden works of darkness, as it says in Ephesians 5. And so the way that you get to a society that accepts these things is that the church has to accept them and it has to not be shining forth the light to cause to cause the darkness to flee.
2: Yeah, if you look at uh, Proverbs eighteen twenty eight, in the multitude of people is a king's honor, but in the lack of people is the downfall of a prince. And there, it's talking about it's talking about kings. It's not talking about elected officials. But you see that one. I think one application you can draw from that is if the people aren't following the prince, the the prince can't maintain his power. Um, right. It, no. it, it's the people and the church. The church leads. Uh, Leads the people, leads the society, but but even if you have a totalitarian leader, he needs to maintain some level of popular
0: approval. Well, we even see that right now with the protests going on is that it doesn't take many people before you overwhelm the government's ability to do anything. Because you have a 1,000 people protest and you've well overwhelmed the police force that's trying to stop them. So how do they actually control them? Unless they just do mass violence and kill them all and then they expect that they would lose their position, the government would. So the people frequently forget how much power that they have to actually constrain and so they don't try to constrain. But then they complain about their leaders anyway
2: especially when you have a country where you can say pretty much whatever you want and you're not going to have secret police showing up at your door, you're, you're safe. Uh, even with, you know, all the censorship that people talk about, it's, there's no, no censorship relatively in the United States.
3: Right. I mean, in Australia you had what? I mean, there was the video, there was video recently of the woman who, the pregnant woman who the police came to her house to arrest her because she posted online that she was going to go attend a protest and when they come to her door to arrest her, she's like, oh, I'll I'll take down the post. And they're like, no, we're here to arrest you. And I think you were saying you had traveled recently, and, I mean, where, as much as you can look at the things that were done in the U.S. and look at them and say there's still a violation of liberty and there's still an attempt of overreach by the government, it's nothing close to other nations and what's been done in the rest of the world.
0: And, I mean, where I recently traveled was Nigeria, and in Nigeria... You have a, a government where the police frequently beat people. You have a government where there is no due process, where the courts are very corrupt, where there's, where there's you know, corruption at every level. But yet they have a thousand people go out and protest in a city of three million and the city leaders get to be very afraid. And so they ended up even sending in Muslim thugs to try to break up the the protests. But you can see the power that people have and I think people forget that they actually have power to change their government. It is, you know, the the reformers would look at it as a three-way covenant, right? It's a covenant between the king and God, between God and the people, and between the people and God. And so they'd say that the people have a real ability to affect the leaders and how far they can go.
1: So that, if you if you say that, and if that's really true that the people actually have the power to affect their government, to change their government, and then you look at the government that we have, and the options that we have for a government. You, you, back to the the first question of how did we get here? How did we get this government? And why is it that the government options we have aren't really that much more attractive than they were four years ago or eight years ago? Yeah, they seem to get
0: worse, don't they? <laughs> and,
1: and and there's really uncomfortable answers to that question. It, we are a representative democracy, and when we look at the options that we have for representing us, and none of them are attractive, you have to you have to take that to its logical conclusion and say, well, those are representations of what we are as a people. And the way that you get lying, corrupt options is by being a people who tolerate, embrace, participate in, lies and corruption. That's where we are today. And nobody wants to hear that, but they are us. And we have to
0: take that and not just make that the society, but that's also where the church is, right? Because the church shines forth light and how much does the church accept lying? How much does the church accept in its leaders corruption, right? God gives us very clear requirements for leaders but those usually aren't the requirements that people are looking for they're not looking for you know somebody to be the husband of one wife to rule their household well to be hospitable to do the things that it says in first timothy three and titus one instead they're looking for somebody who's magnanimous they're looking for somebody who speaks well and is articulate somebody who holds their attention somebody who says the things that they want to hear instead of saying the things that that feed them and strengthen them and edify them like they're supposed to. And so I do think it starts with the church about what kind of leaders does the church choose?
1: Well, you you can say that lies and corruption are natural to man. Without the effects of the gospel, without the restraint of the effect of the church on society, you're going to have lies and corruption because that's what men are without Jesus. And there was a time when there was a lot more gospel in the country. There was a lot more restraint on sin. And as the gospels diminished and as the restraint on sin is diminished, the effects of man as just man are showing themselves. And we all look around and say, where did this come from? It came from our hearts. And the church stopped saying anything about it.
0: And I do think it even comes from some place, you know, Different than that, not different than that contradicting what you're saying, but there was a point in the, the 60s and the 70, 70s where there was a, a legal movement to drive the Bible out of schools. So before that, you look when, when public schools were established, they were mostly established so that Roman Catholics would be forced to read the Bible. That's why we got mandatory compulsory education. And then 100 years later, the movement comes to remove the reading of the Bible and some of these numbers that you look at them, if you look at charts of the increase in in uh, you know fornication, the increase in theft, the increase in across the board, you can really tie it back to when the country stopped everybody in the country through their you know schooling stopped reading the Bible so that they aren't familiar to with what God said. So, you know, when we think about the gospel, it's very easy for us to think about the simple gospel, right? Jesus Christ died and was resurrected on the third day. But the fullness of the gospel is the word of God. And just removing the word of God from society is how we get the leaders that we're getting, or certainly part of how we get the leaders that we're getting.
2: You look at some of the, the scandals that people will accept, you know, politicians, you know, doing. I mean, in North Carolina, you had a, a Senate candidate who got, you know, almost within a few percentage points of winning, even though he was having adulterous affairs a few months ago. But still, you know, almost half the people are voting for him. Um, but why is that? Well, you look at how uh, churches handle um, scandals in the church leadership. It might be a little better than that, but not much, not biblically. In the and number so how can you churches. expect, uh, how can you expect, you know, secular voters to handle things better than many churches do.
0: And I know of a lot of churches that have split because the pastor was caught in adultery, and half the people go, but he's a great preacher. He's cried. Why would we throw him out as a pastor? And the other half goes, we're starting another church. I mean, that's pretty common. So I'm not sure the church does deal with adultery among the pastorate that much different than the world does.
3: Right. They don't deal with it much differently than Paul writing the letter to the Corinthians, right, saying— this is how you—some is some of you are sitting here celebrating that this is the grace of God. I mean, if you look at the church in America—I mean, if you even take a step back, if you look at every single church, you can say—I think you can say that every church is an argument for what it looks like when the Holy Spirit is empowering people to resist. You know, the, it's an argument for the effect of the Holy Spirit on people. And that's that's pretty scary when you think about the change that's happened in the church over the last hundred years— there's been a shift from saying that the Holy Spirit takes people and makes them holy to the Holy Spirit takes people and causes them to sin and just keeps forgiving them of those sins over and over and over again. I mean, that's that that that's been a huge change in the American church, and it's been just a massive shift in what the church is arguing that it means to have the Holy Spirit.
2: So if we go back even to the founding, you have someone like John Adams, um, founding father, and there's You know, no reason to think that he was a believer. There's a lot of reason to think he wasn't a believer. Including his own writings. (laughs) Right. Yes. Yes. But I mean, but he said um, when he was president, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition and revenge or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. So there, you even have uh, a non-believer um, recognizing that without morality, without religion, without Christianity, we're not going to be able to maintain um, maintain the country that we have. Um, and which you know that that is even more true for a country that is based on. The power starting with the people and working up through the states up to the federal government, where the leaders are elected, where they're not—it's not a monarchy. Um, So there, we have even stronger responsibility to, because the leaders ultimately can't control us. Because every, even less than normally, because every two, every four years, we're appointing new leaders. Uh, So there's even less control. I mean, ultimately, a, a king can never keep a wicked people in check, but there's even less chance of that when you when you're electing them,
0: and one of the one of the basic risks of a republic or a democracy and it's worse with the democracy but it's also true for a republic which is kind of where we are is everybody's trying to divide the spoil and so everybody's trying to get there right you vote for Republicans because you want to pay less taxes you vote for Democrats because you want to get more stuff from the government and so everybody's just really working to divide the spoil it's really easy for us to say a Republican form of government is the best form of government, but that's only true for religious people. Other than that, it's better to have one person who's just feeding his avarice and constraining everybody else's, which is what a monarchy is. And so you look at it, the history of the world, you're going to go to monarchy if you, if as a republic you break down and stop having morality. I mean, that's what happened with the Roman Republic going to the Roman Empire. If you lose your morality and you lose the sense of, and granted theirs was a very idolatrous morality, but it was still the idea that there was a proper way to behave and you had to behave the proper way. But when you lose that sense, the monarchy is a blessing of God because it stops being 50% trying to steal from the other 50% and just becoming one family you know that's getting enough for themselves and trying to constrain everybody else's avarice.
2: Right, and it works this way with a lot of rights given by god if people are abusing them regularly they get taken away i mean why do people whenever they're pushing for gun control because someone is using their rights wrongly if you have a country where no one is you know using their right to have weapons properly your people the government's going to come and take people's weapons away because if 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 more often people are abusing it than using it rightly you're it's going to be lost
0: and, and the government's always going to grow
2: yeah
3: if you do accept that it's the fault of the church and it's the fault of the people and it's the fault of of these things i mean what are things that people can actually do to to make a change you know i mean how do you actually start to change things i mean is it is it in the I me mean, is it within your church saying how do we deal with how do we treat people when they seek to be holy how do we how do we pursue holiness within the church and how do you not not strike people down who have that attitude and that desire to actually be holy? Or is it that you have to leave, you know, you look at your church, is it time for certain people to actually leave their church and, 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 and be separate because it's gotten too corrupt.
0: And I think the answer to that is on a church by church basis, right? I mean, there's no universal answer. And obviously you didn't think so when you said, asked the question, right. But, you know, I think we forget what it means to love your neighbor Right, Leviticus 19.17 says, right, which Jesus Christ says is the second greatest commandment. I mean, it's about rebuking your neighbor and not hating him and not having his sin abide on you. And so one of the things that the church has to do is if we want people to stop lying when they're running for office is you have to not accept lies in the church and you have to accept, not accept sin in the church because we, the, the church can't have an impact on the society unless it's having an impact on its own members.
1: And do you realize how prevalent lies are? Like you you cannot read a label on the back of a packet of tea without somebody lying to you. You know, and and it's just all over the place. We are we are swimming in lies everywhere because the church stopped caring enough about the truth to say lies are a problem. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We stop saying that.
0: And Satan is the father of lies. And we won't go to somebody who's lying and say, why are you following Satan? Because, you know, Jesus Christ said, right, if, you, if Abraham was your father, you would do the works of Abraham. And when somebody lies, we don't say, well, so Satan's your father because you're doing the works of Satan, which is a logical conclusion.
3: And doctrine is central. I mean, like you know, there's the verse in Timothy that talks about there's a time when, when men will not endure sound doctrine and they'll have itching ears and they'll desire for people to come and tell them you know, tell them what they want to hear effectively. And there's this, there is this part of it. And I mean, and you could, you can go all sorts of, you can go really far with it. But there's a part of it where there's so many different, there are descriptions of what you would call the simple gospel. Jesus loves you in such simple terms where you turn God into this simple thing that they're basically built on top of lies. I mean, they're effectively lies about who God is. They're lies about the complexity of God there are lies about what God is trying to achieve. There are lies about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does in the world. And I mean, so there's there's lies that are effectively there to def- to deny true doctrine. And and I mean and that's that's core. I mean, that's this is this is below even the level of of line within, you know, someone just tells a lie to cover something up, but they're suppressing the truth of God's word and unrighteousness, and they're preaching it and teaching it to people. And I think that's that's pretty
0: key. And one of the ways that I see that lie the most is somebody's seen in sin, potentially serious sin, or all sin serious at a certain level, but where they have a pattern of sin in their life and uh, and they go, well, yeah, he does that, but boy, he really loves God. Well, no, this is the love of God to keep his commandments. And yet we've separated the love of God from keeping his commandments. Yeah, I know that person wants to get a divorce, but, oh, I just see him. He just so loves the Lord. I've heard that about so many people that are in so much sin, and it's like he does not love the Lord. If he loved the Lord, he would obey his commandments because that's the sign of actually loving God. And so we've created this separation where there's these gooey feelings and so that makes them acceptable to God. And then you have a politician that says things that gives you gooey feelings. I'm going to make sure that nobody gets sick from COVID anymore. I'll stop all the deaths of COVID. And everybody knows it's not true. But they don't care. They just want to hear something that gives them warm fuzzies.
2: Yeah, and to loop back to, to Jonathan's question, I mean, how – if if we take it beyond the personal stop lying, stop doing these things that – we're seeing in politicians beyond the church stop in the, in the families stop, st- stop, stop at wherever possible in those areas. But how do we actually affect the government? I mean, I think that, and, and, uh, you know, I, it, we're not necessarily speaking from experience here, but the best way is to start local. I mean, you're going to have a lot more influence on that. I mean, we saw it a bit with, uh, with the coronavirus stuff, you know, the, the county c- commissioners where we are, were putting some really strict, um, uh, restrictions. restrictions on churches um, even like saying you can't do the Lord's Supper you have to do it in this way and I mean
0: can't people, an <laughs> right,
2: people from the church wrote to them and you know I'm sure plenty of other people did too and we don't know their motivation but they stopped and you know you're going to have a lot more influence if you're speaking not to the president but to your your local government and 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 calling them out when they are violating God's law when they're violating you know more morality um, is, is going to be a lot more effective the smaller the, the area you're speaking to is.
3: And I think when you think about it, it, I mean, one of the reasons why you should start small is you should start wherever your authority is. Because honestly, it's in God's hands. It's in God's hands to make it have a larger effect. I mean, if you look in Scripture where God caused something to have a larger effect, it was because— he ended up shining a spotlight. You know, he would shine a national spotlight on someone who was obeying him, and he would bring their actions to the forefront. It wasn't that they had this, you know, five-part plan to bring this to the nation. It was they were obeying God where they had authority. They were obeying God where He had put them, and in the scope that He had placed them. and And it's in God's hands to make it to make it larger than that. And I mean, He He can lift you up at any given time. He can He can bring things to a point.
0: And people talk about the parable of the talents, and they don't usually talk as much about the parable of the minas. The parable of the minas, it's a parallel parable, but in the end, it's the one that was faithful with five is ruling over five cities. The one that's faithful with two is ruling over two cities. The one, I mean, so God in that parable, Jesus Christ was even tying it directly to you're faithful with the things that I've been given you, and you will... You know, he will grant authority. Right. And and we want to just skip. And I've seen this happen so many times. So I've talked to people who have done, you know, videos and stuff for like congressmen and stuff, and they say everyone that gets in there, when they get in there, they immediately get corrupted. Well, so many who run on a as a Christian, quote unquote what they end up doing is they think they should skip being the county commissioner. They think they should end up skipping working in the executive branch at the state level, running for governor, doing all the things. They should just be able to skip ahead because they're a Christian. If we want to actually change the government, and I would argue first that the the timing for this is that we should still be focusing on on reforming the church because that has to be the precursor. But then once we reform the church and people start to get into – running for to be the civil magistrate, they should start at the bottom like everybody else does and not think somehow they're special and that they don't need to be faithful with little.
1: And there's good reason to start with reforming the church because pretty much everywhere at any time in history where you've seen the church reform, it's put pressure on the world outside the church just as the natural consequence of the reformation in the church. So... For example, right now I could I bet you would say that there's uh, there's people don't really know what a qualification for a person to hold public office actually is, much less uh, you know the Bible says things about this, and we can look at those you can go to Exodus eighteen but if you wanted to just pull people in the street and say what would make a good president, do they have a really coherent idea about what that would be? Is there a political philosophy behind what they think would be a good president? What what really makes somebody qualified to do that? And I don't know that you could really find that people have thought that through. But if you ask somebody what makes a good pastor, what makes a good elder, are they going to, inside the church, are they going to have a better answer? Are they going to be able to go to the Bible and say, here's what it is? And if you start there, if you say, well, what does the Bible say about these things? And that's always the place to start. What does the Bible say about these things? What qualifications does the Bible give for somebody to lead a church? If the church got that right, then I think it might take a little while, but all of a sudden down the road people would say, well, what does the Bible say about qualities of leadership in general, qualities for a civil leader? But the reason we don't care about civil leaders, which honestly— are much lower offices than the offices of elder and pastor, then why should we expect that the culture's going to get things better than the church does? And if you look at, what,
0: look at what people do, if you ask that question, I think typically what you'd get the answer is, well, he's going to cut taxes, or he's not going to get us into wars. And it's going to be a checklist of things of that positions. they want. And it's the things that they want, as opposed to say, and and it's interesting because somebody did a study, and I read this some years ago, and I can't quote the study, but but the form of the study was almost everything that they ran on, things come about in their presidency that defines their presidency that has nothing to do with the issues that they ran on. For instance, COVID,
2: coronavirus,
0: coronavirus right? That is not what Trump ran on. But you go president after president after president. It comes out that the major issues in their presidency is not what they ran on. What it what matters is their character and what their philosophy is. How do they decide what is right? How do they decide what is wrong? And people want the same thing for a pastor, right? They want I want him to make sure his sermon only goes twenty five minutes, right? That's a really important thing because I want to make sure that I get my lunch on time and you know they're. They're coming up with a checklist of things that they want for a pastor instead of saying, what does the Bible say? And so then we kind of take the same thing and do it in the state that we're doing in the church.
1: So yeah. you're saying that if, if our qualifications for pastors are really that they are engaging and charismatic, if that's what we think really makes for the best kind of pastor, is it any surprise that we elected a reality show celebrity as our president?
0: and we want a pastor that that tells you what you want to hear instead of what hurts and guess what Donald Trump ran on we're going to be huge we're going to, you're going to get tired of winning right it's the same exact thing that pastors run on for their positions
3: his big mistake was not casting coronavirus as microbial immigration <laughs>
0: thank you charles <laughs>
2: Wow. Okay. <laughs> uh,
0: you have something to continue after that. <laughs> oh yeah.
2: Right. And I think that the uh, the the policy issues that of, of people are important. I mean, especially where they're willing to stand up to what people tell them the voters want to hear. Um, you know, even if it's against even if it's against logic. I mean, what 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 do they say? about abortion are they willing to make actual statements about it i mean are they going to say well there's exceptions for this that and the other or are they going to say well you know life is life and so if you're going to murder you, you can't murder if you're if we're saying it's murder in this case well it has to be murder in all cases um but that and, doesn't, and, and so doesn't, it shows it, you can show character through the policy positions if you're willing whether or not whether you're going to be willing to compromise with what people want to hear whether you're going to speak the truth even if people don't want to hear it. And I think this is a mistake that you see people make, candidates make all the time. And it's, they start to compromise even while they're running, because they will only talk about the things that they think people want to hear. And they'll sidestep as much as possible, anything that might be offensive to people. And then they end up losing. And then, but, and so the, the, these radical views that they don't want people to know about, that they want to implement supposedly when they get into office people they're always going to stay radical cuz they never will bring them up and then once they get into office they're not going to implement them cuz they need to get reelected so so people think that like they can hide their views but if they're hiding their views they're not their views are never going to come out it's it, it, they're not going to see it gonna, over they might and over come out again. but
0: they're never going to have any impact because they're not willing yeah, to fight yeah and
2: they're always going to and they're always going to stay radical because they lose and instead of spending a year two years you know, changing people's minds and then losing. They spent a year pandering to people and then
0: losing. And you can compare that to the great leaders like Churchill.
2: Yeah, Charles' namesake. Um, <laughs> that,
0: when you think of Winston Churchill, I mean, he said, we should be fighting, preparing to fight Germany. And he said that for 10 years and he was on complete, rejected by every other politician in England until the day that all of a sudden Germany invade Poland and all of a sudden it's like well and he becomes the prime minister because he was the only the one that was saying it and you see him stand on principle and that's why he's one of the leading political figures in the the 20th century and we've lost the sense that you need to do that but but I do think it goes back how many pastors you know I've gone to pastors and said, okay, so this is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Why don't you preach against abortion? Well, you know, a quarter of women have had abortions, almost certainly people in this congregation. And this was the most conservative or one of the most conservative churches in the county. Of I think there were 73 churches in that county, and it was one of the, most, one of the two or three most conservative. And he said, but there's women here that have had abortions. If I start to speak about it, it will just hurt them too much. Instead of saying no, that's why you need to speak about it because otherwise, how does their hurt get healed? It's the same parallel as with the political. You never move people unless you're willing to take positions and say, "Here I stand." And
3: I do think Donald Trump was willing to do that. I mean, I think in certain know, areas. I mean, so there's there's a part of it where if you're looking at if you, you know, if you're listening to this and you're a Trump supporter, there's a part of it where the point isn't the. The, the complexity of Donald Trump. The point is, it is go back to the question that we started out at the beginning is why did we end up with those things that we wanted, that someone maybe wanted from Donald Trump, or maybe that they actually wanted that were actually maybe a good aspect of them? Why did they end up being embodied in this candidate that's represented by all of these negative things as well? Why, why is this the choice? Why is this the only place to find those positive things that someone wanted? Why did that be the candidate that was chosen?
0: And why did he have to run that he wasn't a politician? Because right. everybody assumed if he was a politician, it meant as soon as he got into office, he would compromise, right? And he would change his positions because he wasn't basing them. Now we hear he's, you know, for Donald Trump, it's not based on character either; it's based on experience, on you know, mon- monetary wisdom, on those type things. But everybody said he's not a politician, so therefore he might actually do what he says. Right. Because our assumption is other politicians won't.
3: Right. Because the truth is, some of the things that you really like about Donald Trump, in a sense, his willingness to fight, his willingness to wade into an issue, I mean, some of those things would be good in a pastor. Some of, you know, there are these things where you Hopefully
0: have, with a little bit more uh, right. no, straight in terms of—, of <laughs> Right, but there's this part of yeah,
3: it where, right, does. without the line. But I mean, and, but you look at it and you go, wouldn't that be fantastic? But that's what I mean is if you had someone like that in the church— if you had someone like that show up in your church who was willing to fight for righteousness but he was going to i mean if I you're not listening not
1: care what you thought right and
3: he i mean if you're listening he's going to point out sin in your life and tell you you need to stop it something that you're comfortable with what would you do How, would you welcome that or would you go you embarrassed me in front of everybody and and that's, and that's the question the church needs to ask. How do you start dealing with that? How do you actually move so that a church can move towards righteousness and confront sin in everyone's life, not in the people you don't like?
0: And one of the most serious aspects of that is people have to see the church as edifying the saints for the work of the ministry. If the saints are not being built up, if they're staying the same, the church is a failure. Because that's not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to edify. God has given pastors, he's given teachers, he's given elders to edify the church for the work of the ministry. And instead, you go to churches and the churches expect the people to be the same year after year. Well, they don't want it. The people that want to be the same year after year, they don't want a pastor that confronts them in their sin. But people who want to be conformed to the image of Christ, you know, the wise man rejoices in rebuke because that's how he moves. It talks about in Proverbs. And so I think it's really important for us just to recognize that, like you said, sometimes the reason you don't want a pastor like that is you don't want to change. But we should welcome somebody who stands firmly on the word of God and forces the congregation to change because that's what a shepherd is supposed to do, take you to better, better pastures.
1: Going back to the original question that we're, how did we get here? How did we get these two as a, as our options? And and I said earlier that it's, well, it's kind of our fault because we pick them. But there's, and and this is not in conflict with that at all, but there's also another way to look at it and to say, really, anybody who holds any kind of position of authority, we believe what the Bible says, that they're there because God puts them there. So the reason that we have these people as our options and the reason that we will have the people that we elected in office is because God said, these are the people for you. And when you look at them and you say that they're really unattractive, you have to say, this is the judgment of God. You have to come there and say, when, when God puts wicked rulers over you, unprincipled people, you have to say that God is judging you. And what's really interesting is God's judging us because he's giving us what we wanted, because he's giving us the people we voted for.
2: Right, which is exactly when, they, uh, when the is- Israelites are asking for a king, it's exactly the same thing. You know, God, through Samuel, tells them the king is going to do this and this and this. He's going to enslave your son. He's going to tax you. And they say, we want it. You see it right there. I mean, they're asking for the judgment. They're being told you're going to get judgment, and they're choosing the judgment. And we're, we do the same thing. We don't have God speaking to us, but we have the word of God, and yet people choose judgment.
0: And I would even, we choose, to me, I see a real distinct turning point in the United States, and that was with the Obergefell decision, where the Supreme Court, you know, something like 55, 54% of the people were against homosexual marriage in five people with black robes, Somehow the black robes makes them to have an authority that wasn't given them by the Constitution. Decrees that every state's wrong and decrees that every state is going to have to change the definition of marriage. And the church didn't go, no. And you look at the candidates, even, you know, President Obama, he was a senator. He had some background. He, you know, he had been running for office for a long time. He was a, a community worker. You look at all the candidates that came before. And it seems to me that there was a distinct change with Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, Joe Biden. These were people that 20 years ago could never have even considered getting elected. We've been turned over because we don't want to retain God in our knowledge is what it says in Romans 1. And this is a real thing that's happening in our country. And the quality of candidates dramatically got worse. They had been getting worse for a long time, but there was a shift where they seemed to me, In my opinion, to have gotten dramatically worse, and I think I would point back to Obergefell.
3: In fact, in a certain way, you could look at you could say, you know, if you look at the two different parties, each are supposed to have certain virtues. The the Republicans are supposed to be fiscally conservative, (laughs) (laughs) right? (laughs) I mean, and 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 the, the Democrats are supposed to be one who looks out for the downtrodden and looks out for you know and. Democrats are the biggest proponents of look at the look at the advances in. I mean, I know everybody's like you you beat abortion to death, and I'm sorry. The answer is is no, you're killing babies, and there's just no way around it. But I mean, you look at what happened in New York with them pushing the law to the point. You know, in Virginia where they're 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 pushing the limits as far as they can. Is there anything more downtrodden than a than a child? And then you look at the Republicans, supposedly fiscally conservative. I mean, they both become caricatures of their own virtues. And they become so twisted. I mean, there's just there's there's nowhere left for them to go. There's nowhere they're They've suppressed the truth of their own of their own righteousness. You know, what I mean, they, they they don't even know what it is anymore.
0: And when we put our hope in the political parties, right, oh, the Republicans control the Senate, they control the House, they control the presidency. Certainly they'll stop the funding of abortion from the federal government. Right. And the answer is, of course not, because that's not what their character is. That's just an issue that they're using to get power. Otherwise, they would stand firm, but they don't stand firm because they don't really want to stop the funding because otherwise, how will they get people to come out and work for their candidacy the next time they need to get elected? And so as people, we need to stop being fooled. I mean, how many times will we be fooled over and over again? And it's because we don't want to know is why we're fooled
2: over and over again. How many millions of Christians voted for their representative or their president who was funding abortion or funding Planned Parenthood, which is right basically yes. equivalent.
3: I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with with you know conservative Christians, and they'll they'll look and they'll say. You look at the Democratic Party and the way it treats the minority-blocked votes, the way they treat blacks and Hispanics, and they take them for granted. They basically say, we assume they'll vote for us. We don't actually have to do anything for them. We'll just string them (laughs) along. And they know that no matter who they put up, they'll vote for them. And then they turn around, and the Republican Party treats the Christian group exactly the same way. What are you going to do? Vote Democrat? You're going to vote for whoever we put up for you, and you know you will. And it's it's so funny they can see it on the other side.
2: But but they but there's judges who will vote to uphold Planned Parenthood now. I mean, what's the what's right. the problem?
3: Exactly.
0: So I think you know to summarize what we've been talking about, we've been talking about the country has reached a point because of where the church has been leading it, because the church has failed to shine forth the light, and so it seems to me that that it's very obvious where we need to start. You know, it, and we need to have the boldness to start, and it's very sinful for the church to complain about the leaders that we've been given when we're not doing what it takes to stop getting those leaders.
3: It's very easy as the church to—it's very easy just as a people to, to blame others, but Scripture says those who don't have Christ, they're in darkness, they're blind, they're lame, And it's really easy for those who have light, who aren't lame, who have the power of the Holy Spirit, to blame those who are in darkness. And that's just foolishness. And the church needs to be—I mean, I need to be responsible for that. I need to understand my responsibility. It's Chesterton's answer to the question of what's wrong with Britain. It's me. You know, I mean, I'm the problem. And I I think, you know,
0: personal repentance and— We agree that you're the problem, Charles. (laughs) the
3: problem with Britain
0: and, and so when we when we think about how to start it's very easy everybody should know how to start to fix the problem and it starts with being more serious about the commandments of God in their own life to start to love the brethren right how are we supposed to be known we're supposed to be known by the love for the brethren and loving the brethren is not leaving them where they are. Loving the brethren is to exhorting to love and good works. Loving the brethren is to be willing to do church discipline. Loving the brethren is to, to have an expectation that your brothers and sisters in Christ will change.
1: If you want politicians that have personal integrity, you've got to start personally. You've got to start with your own personal integrity. You've got to start with how you treat your wife. You've got to stop watching porn. You've got to start reading your Bible. And then you've got to start serving the church.
0: And you need to stop lying. We should throw you that in there. You need to stop too. lying.
1: <laughs> right. You need to stop lying on your taxes. You need to stop lying when you tithe. You need to start serving the church. And then you need to say, "Okay. What do I pick as a pastor? What do I pick as an elder?" And when you start answering those questions, the answers for the much lower office of president will just, they'll drop out. You'll, you'll find out what, what you should be picking. And then if the church actually does that across the board, you'll see, you'll see a reformation in the church that all of a sudden affects the culture, and that's going to be an afterthought. We would like the culture to change because of all of the terrible things that are going on in the culture. But the terrible things that are going on in the culture start because of tolerance of them in the church.
0: We don't want to retain God in our knowledge as a nation. And we the church needs to accept that as a nation, God has said, with what's happened in our country, we do not want to retain knowledge of him. The church talks a lot about Christ, but we know we're failing. As a nation, we don't want to hear about Christ So we need to fix the church. I think I would just, in your list, I would throw one more in, is there's also a point where you have to pick your church. You said pick your pastor, but there's also a point where you have to say, am I growing in this church or am I not growing in this church? Am I being edified for the work of the ministry or am I staying the same? And just trusting that the Holy Spirit will somehow mystically change me rather than, you know, we can be faithful in doing what we're supposed to do, but the church also is supposed to be growing and changing. And, you know, one of the, am
1: I building the kingdom of God in this church? Right. Am,
0: am I being useful for the kingdom? Because you know it talks about how we're saved by faith and not by works. We're new creatures in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Jesus Christ didn't save us so that we'd stay in the same place. Jesus Christ saved us so that we would have an impact on the people around us. And the church is failing. And all of us need to figure out how do we stop having the church fail. Because in the end, we know the church won't
2: fail. And just to insert the family in there too, got the individual, got the church, and the family. You know, we should be teaching our children how teaching them the integrity, teaching them you know repentance from sin, um, teaching them what to look for in leaders, what to look for in uh, church leaders, civil leaders. Um, even if we're going to be pragmatic and and and, uh, and support candidates. For pragmatic reasons, to not to be clear about it, that these are very you know fallen men and not glorify them, and uh, and yeah, te- prepare the next generation to to, to do better because it it, it 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 can be a quick process if God chooses, but often it takes years to to change things. It takes decades, centuries, and so it's the the, the family is... Is a, is a key part in how you get better leaders.
3: I and mean, let's really bring home the thing you said about the family because it's really easy for a man to look at an elected leader who has the pressure of a whole state or something like that pushing on him and asking, you know, if I was in that position, I would do X, Y, and Z when in his family where he has authority and he has responsibility, he's not willing to make sure that his children read the Bible. He's not willing to actually sit down and, and study the Word of God with them or make sure that they go to church or do these things. And so there's just there's a real hypocrisy on our uh, you know on a lot of people's part on my own part in looking at someone and saying i can't believe they didn't do what god asked them to do when i'm not doing what god asked me to do with my authority and it's a lot easier for me to do it than it is
2: for them model good leadership for demanding it of others yeah and
0: also teach your children that it's not all about just fulfilling their want because most of the politicians get into politics or end up being in politics for the sake of having power, not for the sake of doing something, because they're more interested in their own wants than they are in serving others. And so part of of changing a society is teach your children to have a servant attitude that they are supposed to be serving others, that they're not there to be served. Right. And until as a generation, or as one generation leading the next generation, if we don't teach the next generation that they have a duty to serve and not just to be there to be served, then we should expect to have leaders that just want everybody to serve them and let instead of, you know, they ca- talk about being civil servants. They're not civil servants. They're, they're people that are there for their own power and their own, their own image.
1: I think it's pretty clear that the fact that we have these kinds of people as our options and the fact that we've had these kinds of people for two, three, four election cycles at a minimum are signs that we're under the judgment of God. But at the same time, the fact that they're these people are also signs of the mercy of God, because God is very long suffering. And Joe Biden and Donald Trump are not Nero. They're not Sennacherib. They're not Stalin. People that at one point God raised up to harshly judge. God's hand is, I mean, it's, it's, there are bad things happening. There are the judgments of God that are being put on us by these civil leaders, but they're not that bad yet. And the church and us as individuals still have an opportunity to repent before it gets that far.
0: And we should take the blessing of a fairly divided electorate right now. That's cause puts all kinds of constraints on the civil magistrate on both sides, and and recognize that that's the blessing of God and not presume upon that blessing continuing, because who knows when God will because
1: stop Because God might give us what we're asking for, and that could be the worst thing that we want.
0: Well, with that, that seems like a good place to close. Thank you for listening.
3: This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and
1: subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.